deals with you the same. And, and we, we learned also, verse 5, that uh, a man goes through his life when he rejects God. And we found a neat little phrase there. It says, wrath against the day of wrath. And how, uh, how true that is. And we explained that, how that from a doctrinal standpoint, wrath against the day of wrath means that the Jew right now, historically, is going through all of the struggles down through history that has went in. We talked about how that the nation of Israel, there's been no other nation in the history of the world that's been more abused or more uh, ridiculed and more uh, tried to be wiped off the face of this planet than the nation of Israel. We know why that is. is because they're God's chosen people and the devil hates them as a nation. We know that. But it also happens because of the fact that they have rejected God and they're pretty much doing their own thing. So we talked about wrath against the day of wrath. For the nation of Israel, that means that they go through all the tough times uh, in history, and then they're faced with the day of wrath, for, for them, is the tribulation period. Bible says the tribulation period, the coming period of time in which God unleashes all of His wrath on this earth after you and I as a church are taken out. Bible says that Israel is going to go through that terrible time, and they have to go through that. They have to go through that, that they admit where they're at with God, and they get right with God, and that it's the tribulation that brings them back to God. And then we looked at wrath against the day of wrath for an unsaved man or an unsaved woman. You know, an unsaved man's life, an unsaved woman's life is a dead-end street. It's a life that has no hope in it. It's a life that has no future in it. Uh, though you may win the lottery and have a million dollars, you know what? And uh, at the end of the day, you're going to die and spend an eternity in a lake of fire. It's a tragic thing. But that's, that is so true the way life is uh, when you're dealing with people. Many unsaved people, they get themselves into all kinds of scenarios. Drugs, alcohol, bad relationships. And it's just one unending problem after another. And what happens is, is that their life becomes so unfulfilling. The suicide rate in, around the world and in, even in America is unprecedented. You know why? Because people just can't take life anymore. People go through the issues. They get themselves in so balled up into problems and the heartaches and in bad relationships and financial problems and everything that goes on. And finally they come to the place in life where they say, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And uh, the problem with that is that and it's like, a, it's like a, a guy told me one time, and he was an unsaved man, and he told me one time, he said, he said, uh, he said I think I'm just going to end my life. I'm going to kill myself and end it all. And I, thought to him, I told him, I said, oh, I got some news for you. You may kill yourself, but you're not going to end it all. When you kill yourself, you just start it all. It just it transfers someplace else, eternal, and, of course, the lake of fire. But that's, you know, you go your whole life with all kinds of problems, wrath against the day of wrath, and then you die and spend an eternity in hell. And then for a Christian, we looked at the wrath against the day of wrath as far as you and I are concerned. We have problems in our lives as a Christian for one reason. It's because we violate biblical principles in our lives. I told you last week, we ended the, the sermon last week on the story about trying to fix your 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 dryer or your washer with a with a handbook from the microwave or the dishwasher, whatever it was. And we told I told you how how ludicrous that was to think that I can pick up a a book that deals with my my microwave and then take that owner's manual and try to fix my washing machine when it's on the blink. And of course, this is what we do as Christians: we get saved, we trust Christ as our personal Savior, then we try to run our lives by another standard other than the Bible that God never intended for it to run. Now, I ask you this morning, when you before we started, if you didn't have a Bible, that we'd give you one. I always love giving Bibles away because it's like giving owner manuals to to yourself. Every problem you got, 
every problem you struggle with, I don't care what it is, everything you're going through in your life or have went through your life, the Bible has the ability to fix it if you do it the right way. And, of course, that's, that's, uh, that's what the whole thing is about. The d- wrath and undance the day of wrath for a Christian is the fact that you go through the struggles and everything that you go through in your life as a Christian, and then you'll wind up at the judgment seat of Christ and the reality all sets in and, and it's a, it becomes a very bad time when, when you realize all the reward that you've lost. So we've talked about it in that, in that aspect. And, uh, you know, uh, and it's, it's, it helps you maybe get a better perspective of where you're at because, you know, if, in this crew, we only have, we only have uh, three or four groups of people. We have three groups of people. If you're a Jew here this morning and you're not a Gentile, then you're into that category. If you're an unsaved man or an unsaved woman, you're in that category. Or if you're a Christian today, uh, you're in that category. And all of this pertains to you and to me and the way we are at in our own relationship with the Word of God. We defined and looked at in verse 4 last week, the defined the true riches. And we found that the true riches of God is what God gives us, the forbearance of God, God willing to forbear with us, to go and when God should kill us, when God should just wipe us off the planet, that God doesn't because He forbears. He goes along with the things that we do because the end result is God is not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance. We talked about the long-suffering of God, how God suffers long. That's even more than patience. It's, it's suffering with someone, going through what they're going through because you know that at the end of the day that person is worth going through. And, uh, you know, when you get into the ministry, when you get into the ministry, it's a situation where that has to be part of your, of your mindset or your lifestyle because people come in with all kinds of issues and uh, many of them are not a quick fix. And what it takes to work through people's lives is not only patience, but it also takes long suffering, suffering long. Uh, understanding that people have to work through. It always takes you longer to get out of a problem you got in than it takes for you to get into it. I mean, it's just that simple. And then we looked at the goodness of God. And we saw how that all these things lead us to Christ if we follow the light that God has given us. Well, today we're going to move on here. Now that we got a little reference of where we were last week, let's move on and read Romans chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 11 and come down through some more verses here. He says, For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the, for, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, uh, these having not the law or a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness with their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing and else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for those that have made their way here today to hear your word. We thank you for each and every visitor that we've got and how you brought each one here and We just pray, Father, that you'll give us a good time today in your word. We love you. We're a church that loves you and loves each other because of our love for you, and we love the word of God. And we're a church, Lord, that loves to talk about the things of God, love to enjoy the things of God, and and let that be the the preeminence in our life today as we we look at these great principles. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Boy, when you read that passage like that, there's a great example of how complicated Romans is to read. 
I told you when we started the book of Romans that Romans is almost like a, a, a legal document. In fact, it really is. I call the book of Romans the constitution of Christianity. If you ever had to try to read the, when you're in school, if you ever had to read the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States, you know how complicated it is. If you ever had to get a lawyer and he put a legal document in front of you for you to read, or even a will, boy, I mean, it looks so complicated. It's written in a form that a legal mind is the only one that can really understand it. And you basically, I don't think, pay a lawyer for, for doing what he does for you, but you pay him for making you understand what was written in front of you, uh, that you don't sign something that's in, that puts you in trouble. And this is the book of Romans. But you're going to see as we break it down today, and I show you how the, we pretty much take it verse by verse and explain these verses, you get an understanding of how it works. To me, Romans is, is probably the greatest book in the New Testament as far as my daily walk as a Christian and helping me understand why the things are the way that they are. Now look at verse 11 for a moment. We're going to kind of work down through these. Look at verse 11. Now what Paul is saying here is simply this, that when it comes to a person's sin, whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, when it comes to dealing with man's conscience, as in, the, as in the Gentile, or the law, as in the Jew, as in salvation, as God dealing with you and me, uh, God, uh, all men are equal before God. You know, we got, the, we got the bad idea in America that, and it's written into our Constitution, in the, in the preemblem of our Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. And that we have some inalienable rights that talks about and, of course, that's simply not true. I mean, that sounds really good, and I understand why our founding fathers put it in. And I'm not criticizing it. They were trying to set up a government by which all people were going to be equal. But as Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you? It didn't work very well. I mean, look at the problems we have today. And the reason for that is that that may sound good, but it's like a lot of things that we get in our mind. It sounds really good, but it just doesn't work. And all men are not created equal. We know that now from the aspect that when he studied the Gentiles versus the Jew, God discriminated against the Gentiles when he made the nation of Israel, the great nation that they were, and gave them all the things that he gave them that he didn't give to the Gentiles. All men are not created equal in, in that sense. And then you find people that, uh, that when they're at birth, they're not created equal. You find some people that are born deformed. They're not equal with people who are born normal. You find people who are born with uh, mental problems. Uh, they're not the same as ones that uh, are born uh, without mental problems. All men are not created equal in that sense. But let me tell you where all men and women are created equal in the biblical sense. And this is what you need to understand. There is one way that we are all created equal, male and female, Jew or Gentile. And it doesn't matter what category you put yourself in. And that is the fact that we are created with an old sin nature. In that sense, we're all the same. And we like to pretend maybe that we're better than somebody else and that we don't have the problem. But let's just be honest with each other today. We all have an old sin nature. That is where we are created equal. And uh, that's why when God deals, when he's saying in verse 11, when God deals with man, whether he's a Jew or the Gentile, God looks men and all men as equal. Equal in the sense that they all need a Savior. There was no man, no woman ever born to planet earth uh, after the fall of Adam that did not need a Savior. In that sense, we are created equal. We all have an old sin nature. We're all headed for the lake of fire. And God's Son is the only one in His death on the cross that can save us. So in that sense, that's what He's talking about. Now look at verse 12. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Now, that sounds really confusing, but let me make it easy for you. 
Verse 12 simply says this. The fact that when he says up here, uh, for as many as have sinned without the law, that'd be the Gentiles. The fact that one group of people has no written law, which the Gentiles don't, and the Jews have a written law, uh, it doesn't make one any better over than the other. And, of course, we learned why that is when we opened up and started studying chapter 1. We didn't get into it in a great way because we knew we were going to get into it here in chapter 2. But I showed you, if you remember back in our first a couple of lessons there in chapter 1, I showed you why that is because the Gentiles, maybe they don't have the law written on uh, like the nation of Israel did in a document law, but God deals with them through the law written on their hearts. And, of course, we talked about that in Romans chapter 2, verse 15 at that point and, and talked about which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. The Jews have the Word of God written in tables of stone, Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. The Gentiles have the Word of God written on the fleshy tables of their hearts, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. And that's how it works. And that's what he's saying here uh, in these passages. He's telling us that God is no respecter of persons. And if a Gentile doesn't have the law, God is going to, the written law, God is going to judge him out of the law that's written in his heart. If a Gentile has the law written on the tables of stone, then God's going to use that to judge him. And when it comes to the judgment of God, God's going to use the law in either case, and therefore God deals with them uh, the same. We also saw in chapter 1 that basically we talked about this, that God deals with the Gentiles in two ways. We saw in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 20, that God showed the Gentiles the things that was made. And uh, we saw that in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. We also know, as I've already said, Romans 2, 15, that God deals with the Gentile through his conscience. He wrote the Word of God on the tables of his heart and then uses his conscience to be able to, to deal with that. Now, I didn't get into this when we studied it because, like I said, I was waiting here. But there's two great examples of that in the Bible that you need to mark in your Bible. And you need, to, you need to put it down along this passage here, but you need to see it. The first one's found back there in Genesis chapter 20. And it runs the whole chapter, I think. I think there's 18 verses in that chapter, I think. And it, it runs the whole chapter. And it's the story of when Abraham goes down to Gear. That's a city, a town. And uh, he goes down through there, and you find that when he goes down into that city that the king there, his name is Abimelech. Now, this is not the same Abimelech that's in Judges chapter 9. This is a different Abimelech. But he goes down into that city, and uh, Abraham's afraid because I guess his wife was really a good-looking wife, a uh, good-looking gal, and uh, uh, he was afraid that if he told them that this is my wife, that they would kill him and then take his wife. So he plays it safe. Abraham's not at the place yet in his life. He's still in the process where he's learning to trust God. So Abraham, he lied. Well, he really only tells a half lie. She was his half-sister. She wasn't his full sister. But but anyway, you know, he goes down there and he says to Abimelech and everybody, Sarah's my sister. Well, and so he doesn't want to get killed. So what happened is Abimelech sees her and, you know, and he said, now that's what I'm talking about. She's a good-looking lady. So he brings her in to be one of his wives. See? Now, here's a classic example. He brings her in to be one of his wives. He goes to sleep that night, and God meets him in a dream. And God says to that dream, hey, that's another man's wife. You touch her, and I'll kill you. <laughs> and uh, when he, it's an incredible. Uh, Abimelech wakes up, or he has this conversation with the Lord. And in the conversation... You're going to find that, now this guy has no Bible, Abimelech has no Bible, there's no law written at this period of time, 
Uh, he has no prophet that's coming to him and telling him. The only man that is connected with God that could give him any light on God has just lied to him and said, she's my sister because he's afraid. But you find that when he comes down through here in a dream, the Bible says that he deals with him in verse 5 and 6 on his heart. And in fact, they have a conversation, you know, the integrity. Abimelech says, you know the integrity of my heart. God says, I know the integrity of your heart. God dealt with him on the basis of the law that was written him. He didn't have to say to, he didn't have to say to Abimelech, thou shalt not commit adultery. Abimelech knew it was wrong to take another man's wife when she recognized it was another man's wife. And uh, you, when, you, when you see that, you begin to understand that this is how God operates in the Old Testament. Abimelech knows who God is. He talks to him. Now, this is, an un, this is a Gentile king who, doesn't, who, doesn't have, uh, who has his own world, has his own religions. He doesn't worship God in any way, shape, or form. But he knows the true God when he shows up and he gives him the honor and the respect because he has that law written on his heart. Incredible story. Then you find another one in Jeremiah chapter 40. This is a good one. Jeremiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. Uh, you come down through there, you'll find that uh, here's where Jeremiah has uh, been, in, been in chains and been in prison. And the captain of the guard comes down and, and lets him loose. And he basically says to him down there in verse 2, and this is a great passage here. He says to him, he says, he says, he said, I want to tell you something. He says, the Lord, thy God. Now, that's a telling statement. First of all, he says, the Lord, so he recognizes God of who he was. But then he says, the Lord, thy God. He recognized the Lord, but it wasn't his God. It was Jeremiah's God, but it wasn't him. If he would have been his God, he would have said, the Lord our God or the Lord my God. He didn't say that. You've got to pay attention to every word in the Bible. He said, the Lord giving him his address as, as, of Jehovah, the Lord thy God is going to whack this place. Now here's an unsaved man who has no knowledge, who obviously God is not his God, but he recognizes who God is. And he says to him, your God is God. I know why all this stuff is happening around here. Your God's going to whack this place. And then he goes on to say, when he comes on down through here in verses uh, 4, he says, and you know what? I'm going to let you go, and I'm going to give you whatever you need. So he had some understanding of the great principle back in the early part of Genesis that says, I'll bless those that bless thee and, bless, and curse those that curse thee. So here's a case where an unsaved man who was just a, who was just a, a captain of the guard, a jailer, if you would, he is recognizing who God is, recognize who Jeremiah the prophet is, and even in his unsaved condition as a Gentile who recognized there is a God, but it's not his God, is saying, hey, God's going to whack this place. So when we see these two examples here, and we see verse 12, where it says, as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law, he's talking about Jews or Gentiles. And God will deal with a Gentile on the tables of his heart where the word of God is written. Abimelech and his captain of the guard. He'll deal with a Jew in the nation of Israel by the, by the word of God that is written in stone. One of them have the tables of their heart. The other one has the tables of stone. And uh, so when you begin to look at it, 11 and 12 in that sense, it begins to make more sense. And then we move into verse 13. And with this verse, here's a great principle. 
great principle. This is something that is, uh, it really, not that it all doesn't, but this really hits home in, in my life and I'm sure in yours. And here's what he says in verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the uh, doers of the law shall be justified. Now he's getting ready to make a classic statement about what he's just said in 11 and 12. And we'll see that here in a moment. But I, I, here's one of those verses that you can just lift out and put right into your life and my life. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, there, I found in the years that there's three types of Christians that you have to work with. And uh, this church is no different than any other church, though I think the church is a, uh, we have an extra portion of, of people who really love God and the Word of God. But you know what? Uh, every church is a kennel, and in kennels you get all kinds of dogs. And it's just that simple. And over the years in ministry and dealing with people, I found, in Christian people, I found that Christian people basically fall into three categories. The first category is people that come to church all the time, but they could care less about the Bible. Sometimes I look at them and wonder myself, why you even come? And uh, then you got the people that, like, get mad and leave when I say something that's bothering them. That's the fourth type. I wasn't going to say that, Liz, but I'm going to preach it now. Oh, now she's back the other side. Oh, I just see you wondering what door back in the other one. We'll just see you at the altar at the invitation. Just be back in time for that. Just kidding. Just kidding. But you have people who don't care. I have looked over the years at, in, in, in my ministry and the people that I've worked with and the people, and I get to know my people. I mean, I, I'm not one of these guys that you, you're way over here and I'm the pastor and I'm unapproachable. I, I hang out with my people all the time. I love doing everything with them. I mean, you're the only commodity this church has. And, uh, you know, I feel the better you know me and the better I know you, the better I can trust you and the better you can trust me and, and we can get something done for the Lord, just that simple. But I have to tell you that there are people in every church who uh, I don't understand why they come. They never really do anything with the Bible. They never really grow anywhere with the Bible. They just, they just, I mean, you see them 20 years from now, they'll be right spiritually where they're at right now. And I don't, I don't fully understand that. But I know that that's the kind of people you got, and you just got to love them, and God loves them, and you do the best you can. But, and it's their choice, obviously, but you find those kinds. Then you find the kind, the second group, as you find, is people who, who really, really, they get into the Bible, they study the Bible, and they know the Bible. But the downside of it is that they, they have no application of the Bible. Hey, don't you ever think for a second, don't even let a heartbeat go by in your mind that you don't think you can learn the Bible without it changing your life. You can Amen. And I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of people in churches who know the Bible. The problem is they don't know the author of the Bible. That's the problem. That's the tragedy. Oh, I mean, they can spit out all kinds of facts and figures about whatever, and they can sit down and give you a running commentary of the Bible from one end to the other, you know, and they could probably, uh, you know, answer your questions about the Bible. The problem is, in their own personal life, there's no personal application that changes their life. And this is where he's going with this verse. He says it isn't the, just the hearers of the law that are justified, but it's the ones that hear the law and then do something with it, let the Word of God have the effect that it's supposed to have. Now, obviously, and I've told you this before, when God wrote the Bible and gave you and me the Bible, He intended it to do something in your life. He intended it to change things, give you a different purpose, different direction, different motivation. And you don't get that by just sitting down and accumulating the facts. 
I, I see people all the time that their knowledge level, they look like the, like the Empire State Building, you know. They, they can answer questions all about the Bible, and they, they know the Bible, and they, they stand out as somebody that said, wow, she really knows the Bible. Hey, but the problem is there's no depth to them. There's no changing of their lives on a daily basis. You know, ten years from now, they'll be struggling with the same issues in their life that they have today. And yet, they'll know they know the Bible. They just don't take what they know and let it change about them what needs to be changed. Then you have the third type of people that, that I call them my love it and live it crowd. They love the Bible and what it says, and they love to let the Bible change their life. And I got to tell you that, you know, our church has a, a, has a, a disproportionate amount of people like that, and I praise God for it every day. But uh, you, they're, they're very few. They're like, they're very hard to find. Uh, they don't, uh, they don't, uh, they really, that kind of Christian in the day and age that we live in uh, is not an easy thing to find. Most of God's people, they have a head knowledge, uh, but they don't have a heart knowledge of the Word of God. They know the book, but like I said, they don't know the author. In our discipleship lessons, we have a, we have a, a, a number of lessons that we'll bring new Christians through. And one-on-one, somebody will work with you and begin to lay establishment, a foundation in your, in, your, in, your, in your mind, in your heart about what the Bible will do for you. I think it's lesson six in there that deals with uh, one of the great lessons that uh, I think that most Christians are very short on, and it is, the, it is the aspect of God's will for your life versus God's plan for your life. And, uh, you know, and, in most churches and in most Christians' minds, and I've heard this even with preachers and missionaries and guys that basically should have known better. I heard somebody get up and give a testimony and say, well, I know it was God's will for my life to be a missionary. Somebody else would get up and say, well, God's will for my life was to be an evangelist or be a pastor. Or somebody will say, well, God's will for my life was to do this or what is to do that. And you see, the problem with that is that's not the biblical definition of God's will. Now, God has a will for your life. There's no question about that. But God so also has a plan for your life. Here's the problem we get into. God's will for your life is not something that you do. God's will for your life is something that you are every day in your life. God's will for your life and God's will for my life are one and the same. God's plan for you and God's plan for me may be totally different. God's plan for me is the pastor of church. God's plan for you may not ever be pastor of a church. God may leave where you're at and do what you're doing in your life right now the rest of your life. That's God's, God's plan for your life. But God's will for your life and God's will for my life is one and the same. God's will for your life and my life is simply this. You and I need to be more like Jesus Christ today than we were yesterday. You need to be more like Christ tomorrow than you were today. God's will for your life and my life is one of the same. We are on a daily path of life that every day we get a little closer to the Lord. We know a little bit more about it. You realize how that thing works up to, uh, you know, we talk about wrath against the day of wrath. Well, it works the same way for a Christian who loves God. It just doesn't call the same. It'd be glory up against the day of glory, I guess. Every day of your life, you get one day closer to meeting him face to face. Now, that's going to be a glorious day. I don't want it to be a bad day for me. Maybe it will be. I hope not. But I don't want it to be. I don't intentionally get up in the morning and say, let's see how I can screw my day up. I don't have to do that. I just do it pretty well on my own sometimes. But my purpose in life, as best as I can try, is every day to love Him more than I did the day before. I'm not saying I always do, but that's my goal. 
because I know I'm coming up against a day where I'm going to face him face to face and see him. And I don't want to meet a stranger. I don't want to have to say when the rapture comes and I meet the Lord, now, well, now who are you? I don't want to get in the rapture when we all get up there to heaven and I know all of you. And then I see this guy walk in and I say, now who's that? I want to know the Lord so intimately that when I get there, I know everything there is to know about him. Now that's the way, that should be the goal of your life if you're a Christian. You don't want any surprises. I already know as I stand here today, I'm going to have to face the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I was never good in school, public school, but I always found a way to pass. I'm not going to come out and say I cheated, but I found a way to cheat the right way and make it work. Some people would be ashamed of what I'm about to tell you. I'm rather proud of it. When I was in high school, I was all ready to pass and get out and graduate except for in one class. That class was, was government. And I was flunking government. And I didn't, and if I flunked government, that was a required class. I mean, I, I had A's in gym. I had, uh, you know, I had, uh, it, but government was holding me back. And I, I wanted to go in the army. I, I, I was going to make a career out of it at that point in my life, and I wanted to go into the military, and I, I had to graduate. So I just made a deal with the guy that was the, with the economics teacher. And I went in, and I sat down with him, and I said, Hey, look, I don't get economics. It's not because I can't. I just, I mean, I, I don't want to. I just can't. Now, I said, Look, I've not caused you any problems all year. I've tried hard. I've never been a smart aleck. I've never given you problems. I've always been attentive to what you say. And he said, yeah, you said you're a very good student. I said, well, I said, but here's the deal. I said, I want to go in the military. And I said, if I don't pass economics, I ain't going to be able to do that. And I don't want time to go to summer school because I won't pass it there either. I said, let's just cut to the chase. What can I do for you that will get me a passing grade? I did. I did. He thought for a moment and he said, I've been trying to get my hands on a copy of a model state constitution. He says, I've been tried everywhere. And he says, and I don't know even what that was. He said, I need that. If you can get me a model of the model state constitution, I'll take that as extra credit and you'll pass the course. Well, here's a guy who can't pass government. Now I've got the task of finding a model state constitution. I mean, I don't know what that is, but I'm always... I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll get there sooner or later. So I start calling up my Congress representatives. And I start saying, look, here's the deal. I'm a young man. And they all, you know, you got to talk their talk. I'm a young man that is posed to go into the military and defend our country. I'm somebody that, uh, you know, I'm fully committed. And I, you know, uh, and I just want you to know that there's only one thing hanging me up. I need a copy. And I can't get one unless I get one through you guys. I need a copy of a, I didn't tell him what the deal was between me and the teacher. <laughs> You know, I, you know, I've got to know how to fold them, you know. <laughs> and I said, this is what I need. Well, here's a young man that was going to go in and serve his country, <clears throat> which I did. Here's a young man that was willing to, you know, going to put it on. And I, he says to me, he says, you know what? He says, I would be glad to get you that copy. Got that copy, came back, give it to my economics teacher or my government teacher. And he looked at that thing and he says, you don't even have to show up for the final exam. 
I said, thank you, sir. I said, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Say, I, I, always, I, always, I always can find a way. I mean, I'm a survivor. That's all there is to it. And that's just what you got to be. And I, and, I, and I say all that because, you know what, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Christianity, that's the way you got to be when it comes to that Bible. You got to have the tenacity of a bulldog. You got to realize that the Bible is the book that will change your life. And when you see what you got to do for God, and I thought to myself many, many years ago, uh, even after I got right with God, I thought to myself, if I was willing to do that to accomplish my goals of what I wanted to do, which I'm not saying there was anything wrong with it. My motives were honorable. I wanted to serve my country in a time of war when nobody else wanted to go. I, I had that mindset. But I thought to myself many years later, if I was willing to do that for myself, I'm going to apply that same tenacity in doing what i got to do for God. Because that's what we have to come to the point in our lives where we realize that, uh, you know what, it's, uh, it's, it's not about what you and I uh, uh, do for God. It's about what we are for God. And the God's will for your life and will for my life is the same. Be more like Christ every day of your life. That's why when you get into ministry with me and you want to take a part of my ministry, I take that very, very seriously. I look at you as an extension of myself. I have a set of standards I hold myself to. I won't cut you any slack on the standards that you have to hold yourself to. And it's just that simple. And that's why I warn people all the time. You want to be part of my ministry, there's more that comes with that than a piece of paper that says I'm a deacon or this or that. There's more to it, the responsibility of that. Now, God's plan for your life is whatever God wants you to do. And you will only fulfill what God wants you to do with your life once you fulfill what God wants you to be in your life. In other words, you can't do something for God until you first become something with God. And this is what he's saying here. It's not just the, it's not just the hearers of the word that are justified, but the doers of the word. And I, you, I get people all my life, all the time, that say one thing, but they live something else. And you find that uh, you have to, like I said, you have to be something for God before you can do something for God. I think the concept of 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 is, is the first example that comes to my mind about Saul. I meet a lot of Sauls in Christianity. I meet a lot of men and a lot of women in Christianity just like Saul. Saul comes to the place where he never wanted to build any real relationship with God, but he wanted the notoriety of being the king of Israel. But in every aspect of his life, he never worried about what the Word of God said. He always found a way around it to do what he wanted to do. And here we come at the end of, his, end of the time when the sacrifice was to be made. And Saul uh, was waiting for Samuel, who Samuel was the only legitimate one who could make that sacrifice because he had to be a priest and Saul was not a priest. So he gets down to about 15 minutes or so before it has to be made. You know what Saul does? Saul goes ahead and makes the sacrifice himself. And lo and behold, the moment he gets done with it, look who comes around the corner. It's Samuel. And when they have the conversation, Samuel says, Why did you do that? Why did you do that? And Saul offers up the flimsy excuse that so many of us give to God or even give to me. He says, Well, you know what? The circumstances, the circumstances dictated that I do that. You weren't here, and, and the time was running out, and I just stepped in and took charge and did what I needed to do. And you know what Samuel said? 
He said, you know what? The time that I got here was in God's hand. And I still got here in time to do the sacrifice. Let me teach you a great lesson, Saul. Obeying is better than sacrifice. Point is, what good is the sacrifices that we all make for God or we say we do or we think we do when we don't obey what the Word of God says? It's not the hearing of the Word. It's the doing of the Word, he says. I find Christians that read the Bible, they know the Bible, but there's no practical application to their life. Uh, they read the Bible, but they don't live it. In time, it destroys your life, it destroys your marriage, it destroys your family, it destroys everything, and in a church, it'll in time destroy the church. I told you in Joshua chapter 1, many, many times, I, we taught it when we came through Joshua, I think I even preached it to you, that in Joshua chapter 1, he talks about the greatest commodity that you have as a Christian. And it's the commodity that I look for in young men and young ladies. And it's the commodity of courage. I cannot stand people who are not want to be courageous for God. I, I, I'm not a kind of guy that, and I don't attract people that way. When I attract men in my ministry and in my life, it's usually men who have the courage uh, that, uh, that, uh, that want to do something for God and women that want to... I have some courageous men and women in this church. And that's the way it's supposed to be. But courage in Joshua chapter 1 by itself is just not enough. And in Joshua chapter 1, we find, fitting right into what it says here, he talks about that you and I as a believer have to have courage to simply believe what God says, especially in the day and age that we live in. Day and age that we live in, we're, we're, we're criticized if we believe that this old black back 66 is still the Word of God. I don't really care what you think. Never have. I believe that this Bible is the absolute infallible Word of God. And if the whole world goes the other way, I'll still stick with this. I have courage to believe it. And then in there, the Bible says that in the life that you and I have to live, we have some ups and downs. I tell you all the time, many things that happen in your life, many things that you have to go through and I have to go through, you're not the author of. Some of it you are. Some of it you are. But many times there'll be circumstances that'll come into your life that you'll have to deal with that uh, you had no you had no no part of. It just landed in your lap, your front yard, your backyard, or came through your roof and landed in your bed. And now you aren't responsible for the fact that it happened, but you are responsible how you deal with it and how you respond to it. And this comes up to the second thing that it takes courage in Joshua chapter 1, and that is courage to be able to rest in what the Word of God says. You know, there's some troubling times out there this morning if you missed the 6 o'clock news this morning. There's some real troubling times in this world. There's some real things on the horizon that don't look good. Gas is almost $4 a gallon. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Those kind of things have a tendency. The last time you went to the grocery store, I'm sure you're seeing that groceries cost a lot more than they did even a couple of months ago. Everything. Everything is. And there's a tendency to put panic into Christianity. And, of course, once panic hits an army, the army's finished. The thing that holds an army together is the cohesiveness of the men and the courage that they have to hold that line and be what God wants them to be. And it takes courage, my friend, to rest in this book in the times of troublous times. 
when you got to be faced with some issues that are physical issues, it's just kind of silly today to open up a book and just claim a promise and then say from that promise it's going to be okay. I guarantee you, you can take this to the bank probably more than you can take your check, paycheck to the bank. Because God's Word is eternal. And yes, it will get you through, but you have to learn to, you have to learn to rest in it. You have to learn to believe it. But then the, 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 the biggest one is the third one. Not only do you have to exercise courage to, to, to believe it, not only do you have to exercise courage to rest in it, but you've got to exercise courage to obey it. That's the tough one. That's what's hard. That's what's hard. The main point of all this is clear by now, I'm sure. Having it in your heart or having it in stone, or if I might just add another application, having it in your hand this morning doesn't change anything about you. No more than it changed about the Jew or it changed about the Gentile. The fact that one had it in the stony part of their heart and the other one had it in stone. And you and I have it in our hand makes no difference if you just hear it but you don't apply it. I, I, don't, I could preach on this all day. James, James chapter 1 verse 22 says, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. And then I love the comma with the postscript. Deceiving your own selves. We've got God's people today who were saved and on their way to heaven who have deceived themselves into thinking they have a relationship with God when they don't. They know things that they think that knowing the Bible is proof of your relationship with God. They think that if you got the academics down and you know Daniel 2 and you know the Bible, how it goes to bar, that that is a, some kind of badge or neon sign that says, I really have a close relation with God. Remember what I said. You can learn the Bible and know the Bible without it affecting and changing your life. If your life is not different today than it was five years ago, you got some problems in your life. Doesn't say you can't fix it. The question is, are you honest enough? Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm, 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 I'm getting the cherries off the cake before we even get to the cake. Listen, the real value of a child of God, his net worth, as far as I'm concerned in ministry and in your own personal relationship with God, the real value of a child of God, his net worth or her net worth, is not what you say but rather what you do with the principles in the Word of God, plain and simple. Does the Word of God change your life on a daily basis? Or do you deceive yourself, your, that old legend in your own mind, you know, that uh, you just, uh, you, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was the week before last, I, I loved it, I loved it. I, I made the statement, and I said, how many of you, i got to think how I just said it, how many of you, Love God more now than you did five years ago. Oh, you should have saw your faces. I mean, it wasn't just, I know it's turkey season in the fall, spring, and it's mating season, and you see them along the road where they puff out their feathers, and they walk around like this, and drag that big old red bill down there, and they flitter, and they put their wings down like that, and walk around, and you know, and, and, and it's, it's mating time. They want to impress the hen. Most of us do that on Saturday night. Anyhow, when we go, don't we? we just put our different set of wings on, and, you know, and anyway. And, and they're walking around down there, and they're trying to impress them. And I thought to myself, you know what? 
That's what so many of God's people do. They dress it all up on the outside and they want to, they want to, they want to give an impression. And I remember I asked that question. I said, I said, do you love God more now than you did five years? Oh, you should have saw it. I mean, the faces were priceless. I mean, it was, it was, I heard he even had some amens and everybody's head shook and everybody smiled, you know. And boy, I'll tell you what, if this room was in dark when I asked that question, boy, the lights in your faces would have lit this room until I asked a set of questions that brought you back down to earth. And I told my wife, I looked over to her and I said, honey, just enjoy the silence. This is what a turkey farm sounds like the day after Thanksgiving. No more amens. No more smiles. The lights went out because reality had set in. We always like to pretend that we're closer to God than, than we probably really are. And yet within that you find some men and women who I really believe have the relationship with God that they, they really do. They really do. But I've learned a long time ago. I am never impressed by what somebody, what somebody says. I'm never impressed. The, to me, the value is not what do you know about the Bible. The value to me is looking at your own personal life and see how you do the principles. The next thing I look at is your wife, and the next thing I look at is your family. Because there's the true test. I mean, it doesn't mean, nothing else means anything. Because we get the idea that, uh, you know, that uh, it's just, we try, to, we try to deceive ourselves into thinking, and many of the times we do. You know, I know it's true in winning people to Christ. We've had a lot of people saved in our church, and, and, uh, uh, the last person I personally won to the Lord was, was Clayton right here. And we talked about that that morning. And there wasn't hardly a week doesn't go by that somebody doesn't call me and say, hey, so-and-so's gotten saved or, you know, a friend of mine got saved. And I'm, always, and I'm always happy about that, but I also know the reality of that. And I never throw cold water on anything because I know people learn in time and it goes on from there. But you realize that based on what we're talking about today of how people deceive themselves, well, let me tell you something. If God's people, if you and me, you and me now, who have the Holy Spirit of God living inside us, who have the living Word of God and have a church like this, if you can sit here this morning and pretend to be one thing when you're really something else inside and not get honest with yourself, what do you think an unsaved person can do? I'm very careful of how I win a person to Christ. There was a day, in fact, I, I teach, and it's going to sound terrible, but you've got to understand where I'm coming from. When I, 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 don't, I don't go out and just look for people. I know guys that all they do is go out and witness to people on the street corner or everybody they meet. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, if you don't win out of the next five people you meet, if you don't win three of them to Christ, there's something wrong with your spiritual walk with God. And I just stuff that goes off the top of my head because I know how people like to manipulate with that. I don't want to win anybody to Christ that God doesn't, Spirit doesn't drop me in. Did you ever read the greatest period, the greatest example of soul winning in the Bibles in Acts chapter 8 where Philip didn't do anything? God picked him up and put him in the position? That's the way I am. Now, maybe there was a day when you could go out and look for people to get saved. That day's gone. Noah preached for 120 years and nobody got saved. And the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. We're living in days where you've got to be careful when people get saved. And, uh, and, and I'm telling you, we, it's a situation where people have deceived themselves so much that, that they, that I believe, personally, I just got to say this, personally, based on my observation. And I know, who am I? Big deal. My own personal observation. I'm 30-some years in the ministry. 
Based on where we're at today and what's going on, I believe that probably 95% of the people that make a profession of faith today never get saved. Never get saved. You know why? Because we've made it too easy to get saved. We don't write, ask the right questions when somebody gets saved. And people get saved. We, you know what the problem is? We want people to get saved so desperately we violate our own rule. You want it more than they do. When I win somebody to Christ, that person never dictates to me what they're going to do. Never. When I start to sit down with somebody who wants to get saved, and, I, and I, I started to say this, I deal with winning people to Christ like I do dealing demon possession. Now, that sounds weird. How can the two be together? Well, let me show you how they can be together. I've only had I, I, demon possession. You find some guys that like to boast about all the demons they've dealt with in all their lives. I've only had two experiences with demon possession. Not myself. <laughs> I've only had two cases of demon possession that I had to deal with. I'm not one of these guys that walk around and look at it. One time was at a church camp years ago, and a little bitty kid who was demon possessed picked me up and threw me out the door and then talked to me in an ungodly voice that I won't even want to talk about this morning. Now, I was forced in that situation because it was my camp, and I was there alone, and I had to deal with it. Did I want to? Absolutely not. I'd rather have been in Atlantic City gambling where I would have rather have been. I wanted nothing to do with it, but I was forced into a scenario where I had to step up to the plate. Now, once I did that and got the thing taken care of, did I put a sign on the back of my car, half exorcist will travel? Did I open up a, did I open up a, did I open up a, a business, you know? I mean, uh, dealing with demon possession, call me, you know? I mean, it's like the guy one time, he didn't pay his ex exorcist bill and he got repossessed, <laughs> you know? Or the story about the devil, the, the demon-possessed chicken laid deviled eggs. <laughs> now, but, you know, did I, did I go into that? No. I wanted to be farther away from it then than I ever was in my life. The second time I had to deal with it, I didn't want to go into. But until, if you ever had a demon speak to you out of a hot water heater, woo, time to go home, pack it up, and head over there and get some drinks going, man. I'll tell you what. I mean, I was done with that one. I was ready to tie one on. I didn't, but I was sure thought about it a lot. See, now, once I went through that, I realized that I was in a situation that was absolutely crucial. And if I didn't do the right thing at the right time in the right way, that this whole thing was going to go south real quick. And when I look at dealing with somebody to Christ, here's what I say to God. God, I, it's not that I'm not willing to deal with that scenario. It's the fact that I don't want to. And I'm not going to go around looking for it. I'm not going to walk around saying, you look demon-possessed. May I help you? I, I, I'm not looking for it. I'm going to stay as far away from it as I can. And that way, when God drops me in the middle, I know i got no other recourse but to do what God wants me to do. I know now it's not something I didn't orchestrate. I'm the same way with winning people to Christ. Now, I want everybody to be saved. But I know the times that we live in. And I know that men and women today are very, very confused. And many, many times they come to God and we talk one language and they're hearing another language. And I know the sinners, the, the men you deal with, the women you deal with, they unsaved people themselves. How many times I've seen a person claim to get saved, but no change takes place in their life. Now, let me tell you something. If you legitimately got saved and there's no effect of change in your life, you better check something out. I think you, you better pull your dipstick and see if there's oils in there. Something's wrong. 
I've sat out with people when I started to t- t- show them about being saved, and they would stop me and say, well, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to do this, 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 and this. What do you got to work with? You're going to dictate to me about salvation because you're going to be on your... Never win somebody to Christ when it's on their terms. Never. Wasting your time. I never do that. I'll always let it be. I mean, you find the one boy that when you tell them and they just want to know and they look at you and they'll just say, well, I'll just, I'll do whatever I got to do. You got to be baptized I'll, I'll, tomorrow. You got to you do that. I'll do it. Whatever I got to do. I just want to be saved. I'm tired of this life. I want to be that. I, I, whatever I got to do. When you get them that way, you know you're in the right spot. When you get them saying, well, do I have to come to church now? Do I have to get baptized? Do I have to do this? When somebody starts, before they're ever saved, once they start dictating to you what they like and what they don't like, you're in trouble. I never allow myself to get into those situations. Because it's more than just hearing what it says. Hey, I tell them, hey, when you get saved, God expects something from you. He has something you want to do. He wants you to do. He, he's not saving you because he's in the savings business. He's saving you because he's saving you to do something. He expects something for you to change in your life to fulfill. Somebody says, well, I'm not ready to do that. Then you're not ready to be saved. Going on with it and giving them a false sense of salvation and giving you another star in your forehead is ridiculous. And I talked to him. When I, the day you got saved, I didn't make it easy on you. We went through that thing how many times? Dealt with every issue. Come back and forth. I wanted to make sure. Yet he was, a, he was a piece of cake because he wanted to be saved. He didn't say to me, well, I don't know, Bob. You know what? I don't know if I want to. It, it was whatever I got to do. I'm tired of the way it is. I saw somebody else's life. That's what I want. No argument. No, no no going back and forth. No me talking him into this. Well, I'll tell you what our problem is. We're afraid they won't get saved if we lay on them all the responsibility that, that has to change in their life. We're afraid that they won't get saved. Hey, they didn't get saved anyhow. Can't come to God to get saved and, 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 and forget to talk about repentance. Turning from where you're at and somebody say, we got lots of people that are willing to be saved. We just, those same people don't want to repent and turn from what they're doing. It's our responsibility to explain to them. God doesn't need any more just hearers of the word. He needs people who are doers of the word. And there's our problem. Look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles which have not the law... Do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. All right, let's see what this breaks down to be. We've already seen now that we're not to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. See how this all goes together. Verse 14 says that we as Gentiles, when we don't follow the law written in our hearts, that here's what we do. We make up our own laws. That's what we do. We all do that. We all make up our own laws. That's what Gentiles do. They do this to sear their conscience and to justify what they want to do in spite of what the Bible says. Hey, let me tell you something. I know me well enough to know this. 
I can talk myself into doing anything and justify it if I allow myself to do it. I'm telling you right now. Hey, you know what? If you don't know you're in that same boat, you're either dumb, stupid fence post or you're, you're, you're lying. We can talk ourselves into anything we want to do and bring God into it and justify it and get away with it in our own minds, our own hearts, because that's what we want to do. It's the principles of the Word of God that keep you from going there. That's why I harp on it day and night every time I'm with you, every time I see you, that the thing that makes the difference in your life, not just being a hearing of the Word, but a doer. Living your life by the principle. But you've got to learn the principles first to apply them to your life. They do it to sear their conscience. Justify what we want to do. In spite of everything the Bible says. It's like we're an oblivious to the principles. Because it's what I want to do. It benefits me. I've got myself firmly convinced that this is what I need to do. Don't confuse it with a lot of facts and biblical principles that tell me that what I'm about to do is a disaster. Look at verse 15. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, ah, here it comes, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. There it is. There it is. See what that thing says? When verse 14 takes place and you reject the law of God that God has given you in your heart and you get up your own law to do what you want to do, then verse 15 is the automatic thing in your life. What you start doing is you start excusing yourself while you accuse others. That's us. That's us. Over the years in my counseling format, I've kept a, a, a record of things that I've noticed and seen that I use them to form personality profiles when I'm dealing with people. And I've found over the years seven things, seven alibis the devil gives a man, a Christian man or an unsaved man, and certainly to Israel, seven things the devil gives a man to help him alibi his sin. Because we all got not only the problem of an old sin nature, we all don't like accountability and responsibility. We just don't. We just don't. We just don't. You know what I found about Christians? I can have a great relationship with most of you, if not all of you. I can have a great relationship with all of you until I have to deal with you on an issue. That's the way it works. I found out over the years. We can get along just fine until there's a problem that i got to deal with and then I'm the bad guy. See? That's the way it works. You parents, don't you see your kids the same way? Or some of your kids down there in the, in the elementary, I guarantee you. Right now you've got some real issues down there that you're maybe not paying attention to. Your kids are just fine as long as you don't, I mean, somebody says, well, he's really a good boy. Or he's really, she's really a good girl. Yes, right up to the point that they do something wrong and you've got to deal with them. Then the fangs come out. And you see, that thing is going to transpose itself right down when they're 20, 21, 22, 23, and an issue comes up in their life, and you try to exercise your parenting wisdom or give them this and give them that, you're going to see the same kind of attitude. They don't want to hear it. They'll be a great child. They'll get along fine until there's an issue that you've got to confront with them, and then suddenly they're your enemy or you're their enemy. Seven things the devil gives a man to alibi his sin. First one is, I hear this, hear this all my life. Well, you know what? We've just always done it this way, Bob. 
Well, this is the way I was raised. This is the way we've always done it. Second one is, well, you know what? Everybody else does it. Well, everybody else is out there doing this. I, I just, I just don't, I just think you're too narrow-minded here. Everybody else is out there doing it. Then I hear this. Well, now you're going to get upset with me and, and call me to account. Look at Herman and her out there. Look at so-and-so. I used to pull it out when I was in junior high. And by the way, it didn't work with my mother anymore than it works with me. Trying to get the attention off what you did and put the blame on somebody else. You know what I do when I was a kid and I did something wrong that I knew I was going to get whacked for? I'd hurt myself. I'd feign I fell and sprained my ankle. Or I, I remember one time I wore a, I, I was in trouble and I wore a Band-Aid. I was too stupid to know that all you had to do was take the Band-Aid off. I put a big Band-Aid on the side of my face. And I walked in the house and I knew I was in trouble. But you see, here's my plan. Now, the, the economic government plan worked. I'm giving you the ones now that didn't work, okay? I walked in there and my mom and dad was upset at me. And I walked in holding my head. And I, she, they said, what happened? I said, oh, I was playing. And they said it like this. What happened? Because I knew I was in trouble. And I said, well, we were playing ball, and I got, I got hit in the head with a ball. Now, I'm thinking to myself, this is going to get the attention off what I did because mom and dad really want to focus on, well, my boy is hurt. Oh, not my mom and dad. <laughs> no, my mom, who was back then was about, as, you know that alien blood and alien that ate through the spaceship? My mother had that running through her veins. No, no, her response is, well, I should have hit you harder. <laughs> well, now, now, don't go, oh, poor Bob. I mean, I wasn't hurt to begin with. <laughs> See, no, don't go there. See, I got you fooled. <laughs> Shelly back here went, oh, no. Oh, like, Shelly, I was faking it. <laughs> I wished you would have been my mother back then. You'd have said, oh, no, come on in. No, no, no. Then my dad walks over and says, oh, let's see. Whips it off. There ain't nothing there. See, if I'd have been done, smart, I'd have took a ball bat. And, but I ain't that smart, you know I mean? But I do what a lot of God's people do. I wanted to feign some other problem to get, or somebody, in some cases, somebody else's issue that takes it off my own. Hey, your problems are your problems. Just like my problems are my problems. You're not going to lessen the responsibility by saying, well, look at so-and-so what they did. And that's got what to do with your situation? I've had people say, well, look at so-and-so's marriage. Look at all the issues they got. Look at the other people in the church. I had people say, well, let me tell you, you don't know, but so-and-so over here, you think they're so good. They're doing this and saying this and saying that. And I'm saying to myself, I don't care. I don't care who so-and-so said to what to who. When I have an issue with them, I'll deal with them. Right now, I'm dealing with your issue. And I love this one. Well, brother, the Lord just led me. I love that one. Well, you know, God just, God told me. Oh, don't ever pull that one on me. I shouldn't even tell you this. Now, I just blew it. You pull that one on me, and the first thing you're going to get is my Bible. And you're going to say, God never has a plan without a principle. Never does. Never does. Show me based on where you're at what the principle is, and then we'll find out if God told you or God led you, or you're just doing it because you want to do and bringing God into it. That's how it works. That's how it works. 
He says, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word, not deceiving your own selves. That's what we do. Look at verse 16. What a sobering verse. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospels. You and I better learn to judge ourselves so God won't have to come down and judge us by him. If Israel would learn that lesson, they'd never have to go through the tribulation period. If an unsaved man would learn that lesson, he'd be saved and never wind up at the great white throne judgment. And if a child of God would learn that lesson, they wouldn't have the heartache they got in their life, the problems in their families, and wouldn't wind up at the judgment seat of Christ losing everything they've got. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Genesis chapter 32. And it's a favorite story in the Bible because it's so me. Now, I'd like to tell you that this is a story of Solomon and his wisdom and tell you how how wise I am, but that wouldn't be the truth. I wish this would be the story of David where God says that he was a king after a man after my own heart, but that wouldn't be the truth either. No, when I want to find a story that's really personal to me, I wish it would be Abraham being the friend of God. I wish it would be Noah found. I wish it would be all those stories. But if I got to find the one that really fits into me, and it's probably good, if I got to find the one, it's a story in Genesis chapter 32, and it's a story of, it's a story of Jacob. And I think if you'd be honest this morning, this ought to be your favorite story. You see, in this chapter here, what you got, Jacob, the name Jacob, by the way, means schemer, supplanter. In all of Jacob's life up to this point, all of Jacob's life at this point has been one where he has manipulated the circumstances, giving God the credit for it, bringing God's name in it when God hasn't been 100 miles around it. He schemed to get, he schemed to get his wife and Laban, he schemed to get the cattle. He schemed to get the birthright. He schemed to get the blessing. He has schemed his life all the way down the road. Now, now the good thing is this, is God loved Jacob. And God had a plan for Jacob. But God, up to this point, Jacob is just a hearer of the word. He's not a doer of the word. And so we have in chapter 32 where I can go back to the time of my life many, many, many years ago. And I'm sure if you thought about it long enough, you'd probably go back into your life and and maybe you're coming to that point in your life. Maybe you're in it now. I don't know. I call, and if you ever look at my Bible across that chapter 32, it'll be in big letters, the day get God gets you alone. Because that's what he did with Jacob. You see, in this chapter, he wants to change Jacob's name. The changing of names in the Bible is very significant. It shows that God now has done with, a man has done what he's done here, and he's ready to move on to the next level and accomplish what God wants him to accomplish. Jacob represents, his name Jacob represents your flesh and your old nature and my old nature. Israel represents the new nature that we have once we get saved. You see, God could not take Jacob any farther going on the old nature. He couldn't. God's got a plan for Jacob. God had a plan for me. God has a plan for you. But there comes a point where God isn't going to take you any farther or do anything more with you till you deal with where you're at. Did you ever look at that story? And You need to, don't turn to it now. I don't want to break, lose your train of thought. But go home this afternoon and read this story. It's an incredible story. He's got a wrestling match going on with God. I mean, it's like, the, you know, it's like big time wrestling. And him and God are wrestling. And yet, it's not wrestling in the sense that me and Paul get down on the floor and put a double hammerlock on each other. Hosea talks about the fact that this wrestling match going on is about the will that Jacob wants to stay who he is and God wants to take him to the next level. And God prevails. 
But oh my God, how did he prevail? He had to reach down and touch his thigh and bring it out of joint. For the, Jacob finally did what God wanted him to do, but he limped the rest of his life. Every morning I look into the mirror and comb my hair. <laughs> Who are you laughing at? Where's Kyle Powers at? I know he's in here someplace back here. You ought to hide. Any man who gets his eyebrows waxed, there's no man in my church. <laughs> no, don't call me over there. I don't want to get close to them things, man. I was in there, you know what? I'll tell you, I went in to get... Most of you guys get your hair done. I get mine cut. You get yours cut. That's right, you're the man. You, they don't charge you for cutting yours. They charge you for counting it. Okay. <laughs> I'm walking in to get my hair cut. Kyle's getting his hair cut. I'm in a hurry. Oh, no, 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 no. Kyle needs to get his eyebrows waxed. I said, what? He's a deacon in my church, waxing his eyebrows? I got to tell you, all those are good-looking eyebrows once you get them all done. Man. It's coming off. You got magic marker on them. <clears throat> You're that guy that you got 30 minutes when you get the pizza. <laughs> hey, if I don't play with you, I don't like you. Just simple as that. They're wrestling. It's an absolute knockdown drag out. God wants Jacob to go on and change his name to Israel. Because from Jacob, institute people, we're going to get the 12 tribes and this thing is off and running. But God can't do that because he's still Jacob. He's the schemer. He's the supplanter. Every time I look in the mirror, I got a scar coming across my forehead. That was my day alone with God. Because God wanted me to do some things in my life and I wasn't willing to do it. And God had to run me in the middle of the night one time in the back of a tractor trailer truck loaded with steel and almost come that close taking my head off. Cut me from six ways to Sunday across my head. And that's when God had to get me alone for me to settle what I had to settle to do what God wanted me to do. God wanted to change me to do something else and I was satisfied where I was. Yeah, your day will come. Your day will come. And I love it. When they start wrestling down there, God looks at him and <sighs> Jacob's out of breath and he said, two out of three matches. And God says, he, and, and God says, he finally says, I'll do what you want to do, God. Jacob says, okay, I'm yours. You know the first question God asked him? God didn't ask him, okay, here's what we're going to do or what are your abilities or what are your talents? How much do you know about the Bible? You know the first question God asked him? He says, okay, Jacob, do you really want to serve me? Yes, I do. Okay, what's your name? You ever notice that's the same thing as daddy asked him when he was in the middle of deceiving him back there in Genesis literally on? You know why God asked him his name? Because he wanted to hear him say it. What's my name? My name is Schemer. My name is Supplanter. My name is Jacob. The day God gets you alone. The day God gets you alone. Let me ask you a question. Who you are you really today? Will the real you and me please stand up today? Who are you today? No, I'm not talking about who you pretend to be here. I'm talking about hearers of the word versus doers of the word. God has something he wants to do in your life. You know what? <clears throat> it ought to be the most important thing in your world today. <clears throat> it ought to take precedent over everything and plan you got. 
Everything you do and attempt to do the rest of your life should be run through that plan that you don't screw it up. But you know what it takes? It takes you and me getting honest with ourselves first. It takes you and me realizing who we are. Honesty with God about who you are. I gave you some things that the devil, seven the alibis the devil gives you. Now, let me give you seven things, and I have this in my heart, in my mind, and in my Bible, and everywhere I go. The seven things you ought to go through in your life before you get involved in anything. Don't do this, and you run the risk of ruining your life. You certainly will stay where you're at, and, and you'll have your own day with God. These things help you deal honestly with God about who you are today. And that's the question. <clears throat> when you leave here in a few minutes from now, <clears throat> you got one thing you got to deal with, <clears throat> and I guarantee you, <clears throat> I hate when it just gets there and won't come the rest of the way. Next Sunday, bring a cup. Who are you? The Holy Spirit of God is going to haunt you the rest of the day. Going to haunt you the rest of the day. You may sit there and say, ah, oh, not me. That's because you seared your conscience. You may say, ah, oh, that's because you deceived yourself. If you're honest today and you really want a relationship with God and you may be hitting on all eight cylinders and be the best person that you can be right now in your life, you know what? That question is going to still focus inside you because that's really the issue. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter uh, that you hear me every Sunday. It doesn't matter that you hear what's being said. It only matters is how does it change you in your relationships? How does it affect you in your attitude toward people? How does it affect you in your relationship? How does it deal with your situation in life? How does it deal with you in your relationship with your family and your children? You need to teach your children these seven things. I guarantee you, you got them young right now, you ingrain these seven things into them, they won't be making some of the big, dumb mistakes they, they're going to make in life. The first one is simply this. I ask myself about everything I do. I ask myself, is what I'm about to do, <clears throat> is it right before Almighty God? Now, that's, that'll kill it right there. You say, well, Bob, I don't always know. Then let me give you a little addendum to this. If in doubt, find out. If I want to ice skate and I come into the lake and I said, well, the ice, boy, it looks pretty thin and that lake's deep. I wonder if that ice is enough to hold me. Ah, what the heck? What fool would I skate on it when you see spots of water and somebody's little cap where they went in? <laughs> oh, while well, I'm on the subject, and I've been looking for a way to work this in all day. How about the shark attack out in California this week, huh? You hear about that? Ooh, I'm telling you guys, don't go near the water. Big old 18-foot great white come up there. Guy was swimming out there. Took both legs off, boy. Bled to death. Woo. I'll tell you what. <clears throat> in the stupid news people. He says, well, I don't know how he died. He was a great swimmer. How do you swim when both legs have been off? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to laugh. That's <laughs> what is wrong with people? 
big fish. Woo, big fish. I didn't even shower for two days after I read that. And then I'm in the shower, you know, in there, you know, trying to focus on my affections on things above, you know. And my, my wife, lovely wife, great help me that she is, turns off the light and I hear this. I mean, I'm sitting there with yours. You're swimming around there looking like a black wetsuit on, look when they know they eat seals. I mean, at least get you a, a pink wetsuit or something. You never saw a seal wear a pink wetsuit, did you? Guy said, well, I don't want to be queer. Oh, so you're ready to be dead. I mean, he's swimming up there, you know, and the white, great whites always come up. They circle around. They check it out, take a couple pictures on their phone so they can show their buddies back at the fish base. And then they come up from underneath, and they do it. They come up, and they'll take a massive strike. Hey, I learned all about sharks. Because I may die a lot of ways, there's never going to be in a shark attack. <laughs> I don't go swimming anywhere. We go over there for the baptism. When I'm baptizing, you think why I got two guys in there helping me is to help the people? No. That's in case I got two chances out of one chance out of three, the shark will get the other two guys and not me. <laughs> I don't trust anywhere. Lake Chacomo, oh, there's sharks in Lake Chacomo. I'm scared to death of them. I ain't afraid of much things in life, and there's a lot of, but I'll tell you what, sharks are something I don't deal with. That's their world. You know, he comes out of the water and comes after me, and then we're on an even turf. <laughs> but I'm watching this thing, you know, and a shark comes up, bit the guy's legs off right here. Both legs, one swamp. I mean, that'd be a big shark. It wasn't like he said he ate one and bit the other one. He took, I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> He'd have to be a big fish, man, to do that. And then the guy's on there and saying, well, I don't know how he died. He, he wasn't that far from shore. I don't know why he just didn't swim in. Hello? I'll tell you why I didn't swim in. He didn't have any legs. God. Maybe he was going through his own trauma. I don't know. So right before God, ask yourself, any circumstance, any situation, is it right before God? And if you don't know, find out. Don't go out on that ice and just start skating. If you're not sure... If you're in any doubt, find out. Ask somebody. Ask somebody that you can trust in the Bible. Listen to what they say. That guy would have asked me about swimming in the morning in the ocean, he'd still be alive with all due respect. But I'd have said, hey, stay out of the water. Second thing. Well, what I'm about to do or what am I going to get into, will it edify me or somebody else? You know, that's the bottom line of your life and my life. My life is not to hurt you. Now, I have to say some tough things to you sometimes, and I have to deal with tough things. But no matter what we go through and whatever i got to deal with you on, whatever the case may be, I guarantee you my bottom line motive will always be to edify you and to help you. I have no personal agendas against anybody other than personally you become everything God wants you to be. It's all I care about. And you have to look at what you're in and what you're doing and ask yourself the question, will it edify me or is it going to edify somebody else? Third one, can I honestly ask God to bless this? Can I honestly, hey, you know what? These things will work if you apply them. I mean, they will work. You getting yourself into a situation that you're not sure of and just ask the other party. Can we have a word of prayer before we see what happens? Fourth thing is, what's the biblical principle? concerning what I'm about to do.
God always has a plan. If God always has a plan, God always has a principle. You'll never find God having a plan for anything you to do that there isn't a principle that goes along with it. Just that simple. And when we move in it, we deceive ourselves without that principle. And then here's the one. This is the killer for me. This is probably the killer for all of us. Is God really in this? Or is this me manipulating the circumstances to get what I want? That one will kill you, boy. You know what these things do? These things make you honest before God. They check your motive for what you do. The next thing, the sixth one is, will God get the honor and glory out of this? Now, here's the last one. This is the good one, too. Would the Lord be pleased if he came right now and found me doing what I'm doing? Wow. You know what those seven things will do? Those seven things will keep you honest before God. Those seven things will give you the ability to make sure you don't make up your own laws as you go along. Those things will make sure that you're looking at you and you're always who you say you are. That you're always looking and God's always asking you the question, what's your name? And boy, I'll tell you what, that old thing with Jacob's an incredible thing. Incredible thing. Well, in Romans chapter 2, God is showing us that the Jews and the Gentiles will be judged the same way. We saw that when we started. One will be judged in their unrighteousness without the law. That will be the Gentiles. The other will be judged in their self-righteousness by the law. That will be, the, be the Jews. We saw now that the real issue is not whether the Jews are better than the Gentiles because they were given the written oracles of God, one on tables of stone, one on the tables of heart, but rather the real issue for you and me today and for them is are you doing and obeying what the book says? In both cases, the Jews and the Gentiles were not doing that. It isn't about what you say. It's about what you do. It's not being just a hearer of the word, a doer of the word. There's a day coming when God shall judge the secrets of men, Jew and Gentile, by His Son, Jesus Christ, according to His gospel. The Jew is going to be judged when he goes through the tribulation period. That's historically. The unsaved Gentiles are going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. That will be doctrinally. And the child of God will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. That will be inspirationally. We're not to be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. I want to give you this. And we're, going to, we're done here now, but I just want to give you this. I want you to go home with this, and this will be a fitting end to ruining the rest of your day. <laughs> but here's the real issue, and I want to leave you with this. James chapter 1, verse 23, 24, and 25. You could just listen to it. But be ye doers of the word. We already read this one. And not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man that beholdeth his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continuing therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You get all that in there? That's what an incredible passage. It says, first of all, in verse 23, oh, it says in 22 again, we're not to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And then he says, if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man that beholds his natural face in a glass. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of you and me getting up in the morning and looking at what we... You see, ladies, and I'm not arguing with this. All of you look very beautiful today. You really do. But you know you didn't look that way when you got up this morning? And if I would have come over to your house earlier this morning to pick something up, you would have had your husband come to the door because, as one lady said one time, I can't face Bob. I don't have my face on. And I asked, well, what was she in an accident that she lost her face? She got one of those ones that, you know, if she meant she wasn't made up. I like that word, made up. We call it makeup. You make yourself up. Now, ladies, don't take this personal. 
I'm like old Bob Jones Sr. The barn door needs painting. You go ahead and paint it. <laughs> don't take any offense to that whatsoever. My point is this. You don't look today, right now, what you look like in the morning. Nor do I. When you get up in the morning and you look in that mirror the first time, boy, I'll tell you what. I mean, it's mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And it comes back and says, ain't you, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> you know that little story about mirror, mirror on the walls and a, and a little kid's story about Snow White? And that's so true. You know, Snow White, as most of the little fairy tales, are really biblical tales. You know, Snow White, she got a poison fruit from a wicked witch, and she was dead. And she was dead until one day her prince came and kissed her and brought her back to life. You know, my Adam, my great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy Adam was once Snow White. And the Bible says, because sin passed upon Adam, passed upon all men, and I died in trespasses of sin. And mankind was dead for a long time until our prince came. The day you got saved, the Prince of Peace kissed your soul and brought you back to life. Who's the fairest of them all? Snow White was. Now, you see, she looked in the mirror every day of her life, and she saw she was ugly, she was horrid, but she had deceived herself by what the mirror told her. That mirror lied to her. The mirror you hold in your hand, the Word of God, will never lie to you. But that's why we don't like to read it. That's why you don't like to look at it. That's why some of you don't like this message. You see, you were trapped. Trapped. You couldn't leave. Because if you left, you know, you'd, you'd be too obvious. But you were trapped. You wanted to get out. Why? Because I was forcing you to look into a mirror that exposed who you really are today. Now, you've got to deal with that. She thought she was the fairest. The truth of the matter is, only Snow White was the fairest. And the only way you to get to be the fairest is become snow white, get your sins. That's what Jesus said. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Snow white. And I'm telling you, the Bible says that you behold your natural face in a glass. And when you see, verse 4 says, when you see who you really were, it says there in verse, uh, in verse 24, it says, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way. See, he doesn't go God's way. He goes his way. He saw who he was. He chose a conscious choice to stay where he is and who he is, and then he goes his way. And then he adds to that the fact that he sears his conscience and he forgets what manner of man he is. In other words, he deceives himself. He deceives himself. Ah, here it comes. Here it comes. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. See that thing? Doer of the word translates into doer of the work. See how he changed that thing? You do the word, you'll do the work. You hear the word, you'll never do the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. You see, when I was a little kid, we were going to a vacation to, back to my aunts and uncles in Maryland. We stopped at a truck stop, and it was real early in the morning. And a big old tractor trailer was parked there, and I was just a little kid. And I watched this truck driver get out, a big old burly guy, you know, and he reaches up in his cab, and he gets a big steel pipe. And he walks around, and he's beating all the tires, whacking the tires. Now, for a little guy, that, was, that, that didn't make any sense to me. And I walks up to him, and he was working his way around, and I walk up, and I said, Hi, mister, how are you? 
And he said, hi, little guy, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. I said, well, come, I said, something wrong with your truck? And he said, no, why? And he said, I said, well, you're beating the tires. And he said, well, you got to do that sometimes, and you do it about every so many miles because that, if you keep beating the tires, if there's something wrong with the tires or the tires are going to have a problem or something's going to go wrong, he says, if you beat the tires, you don't get the right sound when you beat them. And it's just, you beat the tires so that you keep the thing from getting wrong. And I never forgot that. You know what I did today for you? I just beat the tires. I beat the tires today. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of you. I think for the most part, you're the greatest people in all the world. And I say most part, I'd say, I'll say all of you. I, I have no problem with that at all. But you know what? Just like that trucker had nothing wrong with his truck, but he needed to beat the tires to keep the things from good and bad. Sometimes in churches, pastors need to beat the tires. We just need to put it out there and make you realize and get honest with all of ourselves who we really are. Do we really do what we do because we're a hearer of the word or a doer of the word? And the bottom line is, at the end of the day, who are you? Who you really are? And the things that you do, do you do it because your own self, what you want to do? Or are you actually applying the principles and doing what God wants you to do? That's the question. Romans is a great book. Romans is the book that forces me not only to look and see what God has done for me as the church, but it forces me to look inside myself. Because I want to tell you this. We all start out as Jacobs, every one of us. Even though you get saved, your old nature is still the nature that's predominant in you. Do you turn that around? And that's why we disciple you. That's why I work with you. That's why I have people work with you. That's why we put whatever in your life we've got to put in there because we've got to get you past the wrestling match and the struggling match that you don't stay, Jacobs. God wants to do something with every one of you. God has a plan for you if you're saved. And he wants to fulfill that plan. But it only starts with you and me getting honest with ourselves and saying to ourselves who we really are. And end that wrestling match with God that you start doing what God wants you to do. Don't just be a hearer, but be a doer. Have a purpose behind why you're here on Sunday. Have a purpose behind why you're there on Thursday night. Have a purpose behind everything that you do that goes back to the Word of God that you never find yourself in a situation that you don't exactly know where you're at in your relationship with God. Because when you get there, you'll wind up deceiving yourself. Every head bowed.